You know, anybody who shows up with something too weird for any other curator to want to touch, they point them in my direction. And that's been interesting, to say the least. What does a North American bipedal ape and a 14-legged albino isopod have in common? No, it's not a joke, it's the topic of today's episode. I'll be speaking with Pete Hewley from the Royal Alberta Museum on what Sasquatches and sow bugs can teach us about natural history. Welcome to Intangible Alberta. Thank you very much, Pete, for joining me today. Please introduce yourself. Sure, yeah, my pleasure, man. Um, so my name is Pete Hewley. I'm the live animal supervisor here at the Royal Alberta Museum. And so my job is to um, look after all of our various live animals, uh, manage the team of, of competent and capable humans that help me to take such good care of all these creatures. And then, of course, we keep these things in order to teach people about them. So there's a fair amount of interpretation that goes along with, with that identification of invertebrates for the public, um, giving pre natural history presentations to schools, and, and that kind of thing. So there's a, it's a good range of, of different things. And somehow over the years, I've kind of become the de facto Sasquatch alien or anything that comes through the doors that's too weird to send to a, a curator um, so it finds its way coming across my desk. And that's been interesting at the very least. Uh, that's a bit of an intimate kind of experience too, right? To have somebody willing to be vulnerable enough to share experiences with you that they probably keep secret from a lot of other people for fear of how uh, those people might respond Definitely. to those kinds of experiences. Yes, yeah. I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's vulnerable. You are putting yourself out there. You are almost certainly subjecting yourself to ridicule. Um, and, and so that's, a, that's, a, that's something to consider, right, is the, is the stigma that comes along with that. And I'm sure that's something that you also have to consider as a professional, as an expert, People expect you to believe certain things and not believe in other things. So what has been your experience um, as becoming the person known as the alien or Bigfoot or cryptozoology guy? Have you had to deal with or manage that sensitivity or that vulnerability? That's a really good question. You know, I think, to be fair, I have little to lose. My reputation, if there is a reputation out there, is built on on uh, being able to interpret natural history top topics to the public, um, identify invertebrates. So, you know, I've built my, people know me as Pete the Bug Guy. Um, so there's not, that this isn't going to erode my re reputation as far as that. It's more of like, it's a side project for me that I find really interesting. Having never actually done cultural anthropology, gone, you know, uh, having, having studied biology, animal biology, those sorts of things, it, it was not something that I really delved into, but I find it really interesting. And I find it odd that we have this, you know, arbitrary split that if you, if I'm a zoologist, I can study all the way up to the gibbons, the lesser apes. But as soon as it gets into the great apes, it becomes the realm of primatology, which is, a, which is like, you know, a subgroup of anthropology. So yeah, I don't think, you know, I haven't, it's not like I've necessarily gone out on too much of a limb. People at the museum know me as somebody that will do this. If you work with me, we've had a conversation in the hallway about Sasquatch. So, um, but I think that's part of it is that, you know, I would maybe argue that I don't have a, a strong enough reputation to damage in doing all of this but it's also maybe been you know part of that is that I'm not embarrassed uh, to go and have that chat with people I do think that you know a, a big part of my job is is having meaningful conversations with people and trying to understand their questions and that that respectful dialogue is a really big part of this yeah and, and correct me if I'm wrong but um, would you say that it has much more to do with open-mindedness than it does with belief or disbelief absolutely right like that and I, and I think I have to be careful not to say like I do I do I want Sasquatch to exist? Absolutely. But am I convinced? Is there enough evidence that we could really, if you had no, uh, say, emotional baggage associated with it in a history of watching Harry and the Hendersons, would you actually be convinced by this? And, and that I find perplexing and maybe somewhat disappointing that we don't have this mountain of evidence building. You know, something that big that can be seen by thousands of people and yet still has not been bagged and tagged. If people ask me what my favorite animal is, it's still Sasquatch, absolutely. <laughs> you know, one, one of the pieces of evidence, uh, well-known pieces of evidence for Bigfoot or Sasquatch uh, often boils down to, I think, what people refer to sort of colloquially as blurry photos. Yeah. There was another case about a, a potentially unknown, undiscovered species uh, here in the Canadian Rockies that started with blurry photos. 
Uh, can you tell me about the rat's nest case? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So in 2009, uh, we had some rather blurry photos sent to the museum and sent to Chris Jass, the curator of paleontology, who's also uh, deals with caves. Caves have, you know, they're like a collection site for everything outside the cave. You know, you've got things dragging bones in and leaving them behind and that kind of stuff. So um, it was a good starting place. And so once he saw that this blurry photo really appeared to be some kind of an invertebrate, he sent it up to my my supervisor, Tyler Cobb, who's the curator of invertebrate zoology. And, and I got to take a look at it as well. And this blurry photo is, you know, at least shows the overall body form of this creature. It's essentially an oblong, pale white uh, oval with a visible seven pairs of legs. And that, the seven pairs of legs, is what narrows it down. You know you're dealing with an isopod crustacean when you see that. So there would be a, a cousin of these guys that you almost always see in your garden or sometimes entering your house round about this time of year. Some people call them potato bugs, sow bugs, slaters, uh, penny carpenters. If you're, uh, if you're from Newfoundland, there's a whole bunch of cool names for all these tiny little guys. And they're just a, a harmless decomposer in our gardens. Most of the ones you find here are introduced species from Europe, like most of what we plant in our gardens, but they're not spreading into the natural areas or anything like that. Um, and this is essentially a pale, white, unpigmented, no eyes, and much longer antennae on these guys, presumably to, to have more tactile sensation and sense of smell and taste in this, you know, completely black environment that they survive. Mm. And so you see the lack of pigment because you don't really, there's no light, there's no UV for you to have to protect yourself from. Um, usually the loss of eyes, well, what's the, what's the function of an eye in a completely dark system but it's very common to just lose the eyes entirely and lose the pigment and so you get these weird pale uh, squidgy looking creatures now that narrows it down to about a hundred thousand species worldwide but most of those guys live in the ocean and very few of them live underground underwater in caves like this is a very particular type of biology that really helped narrow it down so in that case what's interesting was once we tentatively ID'd it as an acelid isopod which is a relative of the sow bugs you see in your backyard and your garden um, then the honestly the, probably the most obscure thing in all of that was locating the specialist for for these types of cave dwelling isopods in North America and and so that took you know there was a little bit of a hop hop and a skip through a few different um, you know uh, institutions before it found its way to the right person who could then identify it as Salmacella steganothrix um, which was actually identified in 1975 from rainbow trout they were they were actually angling rainbow trout with a like a hook and a line in Horseshoe Lake outside of Jasper and when they gutted the rainbow trout they caught they found these very strange bugs inside and and that's where they were actually identified so originally these things we had no idea where they were found other than underwater and somewhere that a rainbow trout could eat them um, and so they were named actually according salmacellus is essentially the the trout acelid um, and uh, and so the theory must be that in order for these these fish to have gotten a hold of them that there must be some connection to this underground spring and so these guys live underwater but they live underground and so we, we have a term for these which is stygobionts which is a really cool reference to the river Styx you know from from Hades the Greek underworld that you had this river you had to cross and so these things would live under like they live in groundwater so below the ground and underwater I mean you, I don't think you could imagine potentially a more inhospitable and alien space for humans living under our feet potentially there's a number of of these different um subterranean isopods around north america but they're really isolated in these caves and the suggestion we don't really know but that they probably would have been really widespread across the continent in groundwater prior to the last glaciation and that the ice age and this massive crushing sheet of ice moving across the center of the continent scrubbed them all right off crushed them or they would have maybe you know uh, fleed at this slowly advancing ice sheet and found these little refugia these these safe places to hide so yeah it's really it's a cool thing to contemplate that these might have been widespread and that we've essentially just sort of pushed them off to the margins of the continent where the mountains are such that there's still some caves that they hide out in um, but man like the number of people that would have eyewitnessed these things must be like a handful I mean the comparison with Sasquatch is interesting because there's no way as many people have have caught glimpses of this blurry uh, underwater underground bug compared to you know the <laughs> the bigger mystery of of you know where's the Sasquatch already right so right right was that a 
previously discovered species or was it a new species? Yeah, so or? this was in 2009. That What was new about this record was that they'd never been found in Rat's Nest Cave before. So Rat's Nest Cave, Cataman Cave, um, Castle Guard, and Algae Cave are basically the, the cave that these guys are found in. Now, uh, when when uh, the fellow collected them in 1975 out of Horseshoe Lake in uh, just outside Jasper, there was no, they didn't know that they were even associated in the caves, right? So, so that was straight out of the the rainbow trout stomach. So they they were named based on that, and then and then discovered in these other places. And I found it interesting in doing the research for this, is that uh, rat's nest still hasn't been added to the official records. You can see multiple records talking about where they were found, 1975 and forward, but it's like almost like this formal record from uh, the rat's nest cave still hasn't quite made it into. It's not referenced enough online that you'd even pick up on it. Um, so I had a couple of moments where I was like, wait, was I wrong? Is this Cataman? No, it was Rat's Nest. It just, we just don't, you know, it hasn't really um, made its way into any of the other references talking about this stuff. So this was um, a new cave system for it to be found in, um, but not a new species at that point, because this was 2009 and they were originally described in, in 1975. That's a pretty recent discovery, really. Absolutely. And it's interesting to me that, to think that you have this uh, species that is um, quite small, Yep. occupying a, an extremely remote kind of environment, like you're saying, and yet we found them. Yep. We've discovered them. We've stumbled upon them. Totally. Sasquatch, comparatively gigantic. Yep. <laughs> um, well, according to the reports. Totally, yeah. Even as a newborn, it would be bigger than these things ever get, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, occupying remote environments, but not as remote. Right. As what the isopod oh, uh, totally. inhabits. Far more broad and widespread across the continent, right. theoretically. So it's interesting as a thought experiment to think why would we have not discovered or or discovered might be the wrong word but confirmed yeah why have we not scientifically confirmed the existence of this North American bipedal ape yeah um, where we've been able to confirm the existence of these other things which should be theoretically speaking harder to find yeah. I mean, I think there's there's a number of things there, uh, the the potentially larger territory to try to explore. Um, of course, it's an interesting thing to imagine what it would take to try to uh, scurry a Sasquatch into a bottle of alcohol to collect the specimen and bring it to the expert. And I think that's maybe one of the biggest things that I that I've maybe come to. How can I even put it? Almost like well, a sign that you've grown up is when you start to say, well, yeah, maybe. Why why aren't we getting any more evidence? What is going on here? But I still feel that you know, even if you were to be able to dismiss the vast majority of it as hoaxes, misidentifications, or hallucinations, there's still a number of really compelling reports and and pieces of evidence that you know, if you were to say, even if just one of these tracks is real, then there's something leaving these these uh, prints behind. And so you know, that's what le led me to go look into David. Thompson's uh, reports. It's quite regularly cited as that, you know, our reports here in this province go back as far as 1811 when David Thompson was coming through. And this is somebody who, you know, logged hundreds of thousands of kilometers uh, on the rivers and, and exploring through these areas. And, and having had a chance to actually read his report uh, was very enlightening. So he saw this set of tracks uh, up by Whirlpool Lake, vaguely in the Jasper region. They went to this area, they found this extremely extensive set of tracks, you know, going on up the mountainside. It wasn't just a, you know, one one off in the middle of a campsite or something like that that we might see today and that uh, the members of his crew you know that the indigenous members seem to say that this was a mammoth um, he was convinced that it must have been a, a very old very large bear and that was based on the fact that the tracks didn't really seem to show claws they seemed to show a very minor imprint that could have almost been a toenail um, and that he was really perplexed by this he said that you know he didn't give any credence to these stories so I think it's it's important to say that you know at that time we might not have had reality television, but you would have been sitting around a lot of campfires and probably hearing a lot of a lot of well-spun yarns about what was going on here. Um, so I do think that that is just human nature to tell scary campfire stories and that we can't dismiss that. Um, but he said that, yeah, they said it was a mammoth. He was quite convinced that it must be an old bear, but there was a number of things that just didn't really add up for him. And it, it does pop up in his notes later um, where he's, you know, he says, I'm still convinced that was, but it doesn't sit right. And that he, this, this seemed to almost concern him. Uh, it was not just something that he, I thought it was interesting to see. I, I dismissed it as a bear, but even that didn't even sit right with me. And of course, according to his, he said um, that, uh, that the indigenous members of his party would have none of it. It was certainly not a bear, according to them. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that's interesting. But of course, once you throw Mammoth in there, <laughs> I mean, was it a Mammoth? I don't think they'd be leaving similar tracks behind. Um, but that would be... That would be equally as interesting. It certainly would be. If there were a mammoth roaming in that area at yeah. that time yeah. than if there were a bipedal ape. Totally. From and my perspective, anyway. Totally. Well, and, and I've certainly heard from uh, anthropologists and archaeologists that I've worked with about, you know, the groups up in Alaska or in, you know, northern BC along the coast that talk about when they used to hunt the dinosaurs and they describe a woolly tusked creature. Um, and that certainly, I think that brings up another interesting point is that, you know, we could be hearing 10,000 year old stories. This could actually have been passed down as an oral story from a time when they didn't interact with these. And probably one of the most commonly cited is Gigantopithecus, which was a massive, like 350 kilogram orangutan relative, um, maybe even more distantly, depending on who you ask, you know, Dryopithecus ape of some sort that was found in in, in uh, China. And so most people don't realize that there, there were actually a number of legitimately giant apes in the fossil record. So we're not just pulling this out of nowhere. There's arguably a fossil precedent. Um, but that seems to be one of the major disagreements between um, some of the folks who are you know, vaguely respected in the field is I say it's a Gigantopithecus. And the other one that Lauren Coleman would suggest would be Paranthropus robustus, which is known from Java and Indonesia and places. And the size certainly certainly would add up. I think there's a little bit more, you know, that the skeleton is slightly more complete as far as what we what we have have dug up for them. But I did see that this Dr. Jeff Meldrum took the time to 3D print um, a full version of what we could extrapolate from the existing evidence for Paranthropus robustus. And you end up with a six or seven foot tall human skeleton with probably about a four foot deep rib cage um and that seems to at least jive with some of the stories you hear man this thing was as thick front to back in the chest as it was side to side what is required in order to scientifically confirm the existence of a species and add it to the taxonomic record um, what do we need? What kind of evidence do we actually need to do that? Until quite recently, we needed a body on a table. And I do think that in a lot of cases that goes back to the old days of the Royal Society in London, you know, and Wallace and other people uh, around the world collecting things and mailing them to these Englishmen who then speculated on what they used to do and were apparently too arrogant to read the field notes of the people that actually collected them. Um, so one is left to wonder how much of that still exists. You know, when we talk about the cult, like, you know, um, colonialism baked into this kind of a thing. Um, so, you know, honestly, it was a body on a table, but... Recently, they actually is the first time ever that we've des- we've uh, described a new species of um, comb jelly from the oceans just from video evidence taken from a remote operated vehicle. So a little submarine that was down, took a shot, and there was, it's a, I mean, to be fair, so the um, the comb jellies are maybe distant relatives of jellyfish, or of the jellies, and they are transparent, and their structures are therefore completely visible. Like, you can see right through them. And so this HD video footage was suitable to actually be able to look at the, the characteristics and differentiate it from existing ones and say this is categorically a new species and the first time ever we've described a new species using video evidence. So certainly that makes you wonder that if we could get some finely compelling clear shots of an ape in the woods here, that maybe we could actually get that evaluated. And when we, once we've once we've established that something's here, and this is this is maybe again one of those things that you know people use as evidence, but it kind of, it kind of slide in both directions. Is that well we know that there are bears here, so all I need to do is get a good good look at a track or a pile of scat. And that's enough for us, like, say, for the Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute or anybody who's out there trying to monitor um, these species in the wild and tell whether their populations are doing good. Like, scat and tracks is totally fine. It's more than adequate. But it's because we have a body somewhere that we know corresponds to those tracks and scat. And so in this case, that that certainly becomes difficult. Like, the uh, questionable fecal samples collected from the woods of North America, we talked about the eDNA stuff. It wouldn't really take much. If you have this thing frozen, we should be able to, whoever has that, a freezer full of, of frozen samples should be figuring out who we can actually get them done by and maybe there's something compelling there. I'm sure it's bison, bear, this, 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 but if even one of them comes back as, as unknown primate, then, then we actually have exactly what we're looking for to say, wow, this is actually physical evidence that shows something that doesn't jive with what we think, but then who's going to take that? Who's going to follow that down um, and, and potentially risk their career? You know, Again, that, that all points to how do you get funding for science? Is that funding permanent? Uh, is the attitudes of the superiors 
going to completely change the um, reliability of this funding and, and research moving forward? Uh, how many people are going to accept that it might be 25 years between you know, funding this thing and somebody actually coming back with that. But I think, you know, in a lot of cases, that's just the nature of science. And I think, you know, something that I also actually only thought about today was, you know, that I, I put it in my notes here that the most obscure thing was finding the expert in North America who could identify this strange cave isopod. Well, who do you send it to? This, I mean, uh, investigating the subject of Sasquatch is, is career suicide for most people. You are almost always going to open yourself up to scrutiny and, and ridicule, and doing this really makes it challenging. Why would the investigation or exploration into the existence of a bipedal ape be so taboo or threatening to some of us? What, what's at stake with that? It's a very good question. It certainly brings up the, the issue of dogma and what we come to accept, what we're steeped in when we go to school. You know, to some extent, a lot of this has been shaped by the, the middlemen, the, the people that are doing this. And so, and I, in no means do I want to suggest that, you know, the stubbornness of the scientific community is, is completely to blame here. I don't think that's the case. I think that we are left working with evidence. And when we don't have evidence, then sometimes I think there's a tendency to fall back on what I would call armchair skepticism. Show me the money. Show me the evidence. You say from the armchair in your living room. Well, you know, we didn't really learn a whole lot about mountain gorillas if it wasn't for Jane Goodall. We wouldn't know very much about, or sorry, chimps for Jane Goodall, mountain gorillas for Diane Fossey, and orangutans for Barute Galdikas. Again, I think you have to be really careful about it and that mm -hmm. and maybe that's maybe the biggest challenge with this field is that you know all, it doesn't take much to leap to the wrong conclusion and and kind of end up filling in the blanks the way you want them to and and you know like I said you talked to me 10-15 years ago I would have told you pretty much categorically that there's a mountain of circumstantial evidence that people are completely unwilling to acknowledge I think that's still the case but a good chunk of that circumstantial evidence may be easily dismissed. But I would also argue that people who look at the Patterson-Gimlin footage, even when it is um, slowed down and smoothed out and put in black and white, that you know you show this, and this is this this classic. Everybody knows the Patterson-Gimlin footage, whether you do or not. And so um, you know, Bluff it's the Creek, classic, yep. uh, the classic blurry, shaky kind of eight millimeter looking film of. Yep. The Bigfoot crossing the creek and then turning sort of and looking slightly over turning. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you've even if you're not into Bigfoot, you've probably seen the image somewhere. It's very ingrained into pop culture. And you can show this to any group of people and you will immediately create a totally polarized debate. 50% of them will say it's a person in a suit and 50% of them will say, how did they fake it? And um, I think that's that does then, at least one has to consider that the cultural context that most of us have is watching Harry and the Hendersons. And that when I see something like that, that's a person in a gorilla suit. Mm -hmm. That's what you think is there's a person in that suit and that has to make the most sense. Now, um, this is something that Jeff Meldrum has done where he pointed out that the frame rate that it is normally shown at is, in, is incorrect and gives a much shakier kind of a look. And that when you do correct the frame rate, um, it's a much smoother gait and you watch it over and over and you say, look at the glutes. Look at the quads, look at the trapezius, look at these muscles. It does seem to be pretty compelling. And some would argue that this is actually still to date the best evidence that we have. But And I would say just for the fun of it, watch it with any group of people you know, and it will split the room in half. And I found one of the more compelling pieces of evidence there um, was certainly the sheer number of tracks that have been cast and not the ones that look like it could just be somebody wearing a boot or a wooden, wooden you know, carved foot on the bottom of, of, of their shoes or on their hiking boots, but, um, you know, ones that are very dynamic that show uh, splay in the toes or toes that have slipped around a rock and then gripped it and left a fingernail or a toenail imprint into the mud. Like this is extreme, like trying to imagine how this could be hoaxed um, is almost a bigger leap of faith than it was a giant ape we haven't found yet that left this behind. But there's also some other things. They talk about dermatoglyphs, which is essentially like what you see the ridges and grooves on your fingerprints. It's the same on the bottom of our feet, on your palms, nose. In fact, they will even use in places where they have uh, large chimp populations in a zoo or in a research facility, they'll use palm and fingerprints to help differentiate individuals. Um, and so if we're taking Tr cast tracks um, from fresh track lines and actually seeing, you know, what, what amounts to toe prints on them, that is, is certainly compelling. 
but you know, if you look into it a little more carefully, you can see that these can actually be an artifact of casting. So depending on you know the the uh, field conditions, temperature, uh, the consistency of your uh, plaster mold, and how you pour it, you could almost have this sort of advancing in little waves and creating the the illusion of grooves in that. Or you could also, depending on when you pull it and how you do it, you could put your own fingerprints uh, onto onto the bottom of this. Um, so it doesn't like that. That was something that when I first read about it, it's like, well, that that just that clinches it. There's no way somebody's 3D printing, um, you know, feet that actually have toenails and fingerprints on the bottom that don't jive with humans, but jive with what we know about other great apes. Um, but knowing that, that you, we could just be really over analyzing uh, an artifact of casting. Let's say I came to you, uh, Pete Hewley, working at the Royal Alberta Museum. Um, I came to you, I'm just some guy off the street, uh, maybe I'm a, a camper or a spelunker or something. I come to you with a photo uh, of a um, albino aquatic isopod looking thing. Mm -hmm. And you look at it and it's one that you don't recognize. You've yep. never seen it before. Is that enough? For you to start thinking, okay, let's let's start going down this line of inquiry. Is a is a photo, in that instance, is a photo enough, or would it take something more? Well, let's let's assume that you know the story seems like it holds water. That the person seems like a you know somebody who's who's respectable, or that you know it doesn't con immediately contradict themselves or anything like that. Then you know I might be inclined. I think it's worth taking it at face value. The fact is we have you know we know that there are a number of these uh, subterranean isopods around North America. So that's certainly my first question. Where did you see this? You know, did you just did you find it in your toilet? Well, then we've got a question, right? But you know, if you ha if the fact that you know you didn't even have to be a caver necessarily, like this guy was able to pull the Tom Bowman was able to pull them out of the stomachs of rainbow trout. So it's not unthinkable that you might see the odd one in a lake, um, as long as that lake connects via subterranean spring to this, the, the sump and everything. Um, so with that case, I would be inclined to say, you know, where did you find it? Can, can we get a better specimen? And potentially try to send it off to that same North American specialist that identified it in the first place and would help then expand the, the distribution of these guys. I think the interesting thing, or one thing there that's worth considering is that I am no expert expert on these guys. I have, um, because my job is partly to identify invertebrates for the public, I have a remarkable amount of experience at trying to identify things from blurry photos. Um, there was a time when people would show up with a mason jar and a spider in it. But since the advent of digital cameras and phone cameras, they don't have to capture the specimen anymore. So I still end up dealing with some rather blurry photos that suggest that the person was maybe too frightened to get close enough and too shaky to get a, a solid shot. And you say, can you show me a, a you know, a close up? And they just zoom in on the same blur. And you have to say, I'm sorry, a, a blurry black beetle is not something we can actually narrow down. But if you catch me a specimen or you describe what kind of behavior you saw, we might be able to, to figure that out. So, you know, that is maybe, again, part of the reason that I'm not necessarily necessarily um, staking my reputation on it because I'm this I'm not the expert in that field mm -hmm. but the question is is can you find I'm the gateway you know somebody shows up and you're like okay I think this is legit I'm gonna go through the the right channels and try to send this up to somebody who would know one way or the other and I think the big the big glaring thing there for Sasquatch is that who do you send it to Who's the set? Who's the 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 expert? Um, and that it, it's even if you are widely recognized, like say Lauren Coleman or, or um, Jeff Meldrum, like there's also a huge amount of criticism and uh, that comes along with that. So I do think that's probably a big part of it. Is that nobody, no, uh, ex, you know, how can I put it? Like traditional academic would even want the title of North American Sasquatch Specialist because there'd be all this ridicule that comes along with that. Um, hmm. So I think that's maybe a big part of it. Is like who do you send it to? Uh, what is the process, um, generally speaking, uh, by which something is confirmed scientifically. So let's say, you know, you were talking about a species or having a specimen, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so I give you a, I give you some video or I give you a photograph. Um, and let's say, you know, let's just sort of mix it up a little bit. Let's say it's an isopod that has eight sets of legs instead of seven. So yep. all of a sudden you look at it and you say, whoa, that's different. That's, totally. that's really strange, right? Yeah. Um, and to you, I'm assuming that that's going to be really weird yep. you know it's going to be it's you know if you said that to someone on the street oh this one had eight sets of legs instead of seven they might say well who cares that's totally stop yep. talking to me that's boring yeah but for you it'd be that'd probably be a remarkable 
yep. discovery. Yeah, or that it might be a different group altogether because of that, and, right. and certainly worth then investigating further. Right, but yeah. it sounds like the next step is, well, we need a specimen, And that's right? uh, maybe something that I glazed over here in the subterranean isopod story, is that based on these blurry photographs that were provided to us, mm -hmm. um, then they went and collected some. Right. The next chance they could from that, you know, based on the recommendations, put it in alcohol, do this or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then those actually collected specimens were mailed off to the North American specialist who was able to confirm that. So he did not confirm it just based on a blurry photograph. Right, right. Um, and so that's the same thing. It's ultimately, we want to see a specimen, but like you could go into the into the sump and, and scurry some of these into a bottle. And again, try to do that with a Sasquatch, try to do that with a bear, try doing that with yeah. a new species of shark. Like, you know, really yeah. the size of the animal, it's... Um, uh, broadness of its range and it, and its even you know capability of covering large distances makes a huge difference for mm -hmm. that right is whether you're going to encounter it at all and whether you have any hope of, of of capturing it so I think that's kind of what it was if we could get a really really convincing set of footage or photos then we might be able to convince enough you know uh, academics who aren't afraid of this um, to contemplate it but I, uh, I I can almost guarantee you that it would be the same sort of arm armchair skepticism that's like you if you end up with a body I'll take a look at it right. um, and so I've found that interesting in looking at some of the different unfortunately extremely colorful characters that are in in this field um, that some of them say I would never kill it no matter what even if I saw it you hear stories of hunters who have their scope on the thing and they look at this human face and they something tells them they can't do it that it's mm. they're worried they were going to get in trouble that this could count as murder uh, and again who knows right totally mm -hmm. dismiss that but that i think that there's something to be said for like you know it tugs on your heartstrings and you say what is this even a fellow who used to work here who was uh, extremely and still is extremely um skeptical about it somebody who worked in mammalogy um he said that when he was preparing this the skin and the and the specimen that we have in our collection from one of the gorillas from the uh, calgary zoo that it was extremely disturbing for him that it was just so close so you know if you if you were staring down the scope in the barrel of your gun and saw something that was a little too close on the family tree for comfort, maybe you wouldn't shoot it. And then the, yet there are other people in the field who say, I'd put a bullet right between his eyes, I'd strap him to the roof of the truck, and I'd roll down Main Street with my middle finger up for everybody who ever told me that this wasn't real. And, you know, so that that I, ho I would hope that you wouldn't be so vindictive. And, and what an unfortunate thing to to kill an animal, you know, that could potentially be so so intelligent and, and, and uh, so rare just for the sake of, of, of finally putting it to rest um it's certainly interesting to contemplate and it's not really a problem when you're talking about an isopod no for no, most people that's like very you said, true scurry it into the jar even if you have to kill it yeah it's just an isopod yeah, they mentioned something about you know twitching for a while and t taking some time to uh, succumb to the anesthesia as it were and and so there you know there's a little bit of empathy built into when you're like yeah they were twitching you know nobody said that they cried over it but yeah, it's, it's, it's too bad. I, okay. Certainly for myself in collecting insects, I try to collect them live, determine whether we need the specimen, and if we don't, I let them go. Okay. Um, rather than putting them to the cyanide killing bottle first, you know, and let God sort them out, right? So, and that's my hope, is that if we can actually start, you know, getting some some reasonable samples collected from places, maybe, you know, now we're, we're in a better position to get meaningful information out of a, a DNA sample. Of course, if it doesn't turn out to be bison or wolf or something like that, um, and that's certainly would be the hope that technology is uh, potentially promising here mm -hmm. but of course you still have to be able to catch catch or get some small portion of that of that uh, creature in order right. to analyze it and then and from trustworthy people let's say we've got our um, eight sets of legs isopod yeah got it in a jar yep. giving you the jar you've confirmed it let's say let's say you're the specialist just because I mean you understand how the process works but then what happens? How, how does it become accepted? Is there, do you you'd call have, someone and get a them paper. to... Yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd have to write up a peer-reviewed paper and have you know have it go through all the rigorous um, uh, analysis by your peers and that sort of stuff and make sure that this is, uh, rep uh, I guess, repeatable. Mm -hmm. But uh, basically, you're just writing up a description of this species, saying how it differs from all of the other ones. You're going to be probably be using the existing dichotomous key that we would use to say, okay, does it have spines on these legs or are they this big? Okay, then and then it helps you sort of work your way down and narrow it out by this various set of characters that then helps you tell it's this species or this species. And if you did that and it didn't end up on any one or it didn't match, then we're going to actually have to start adding this list of characters. But you would essentially describe it in more detail than any person could possibly ever want to know and then provide the specimens up the line and then based on the acceptance of that paper we could then say we've actually described a new species so you've you found the specimen there's enough physical evidence uh, photographic ev evidence 
um, descriptive evidence that you then publish a paper. Yep. It becomes available to the scientific community. Yep. And then I'm assuming that there's a mass effect of sort of enough scientists agreeing that this is legitimate, yep. that then it just becomes true. It, it, it is accepted that it is real. Yep. Is there, you know, then what happens? Is there a book somewhere that its name is written in? Is it is it online? Is there a yeah, database? That's how, does it, how does it become confirmed that this is a real animal. You know, and that's and that's an interesting thing because, you know, people do checklists, right? Well, they say that all the spiders of Alberta are something. Well, that's somebody undertaking an absolutely massive effort to recognize and key out every single one of these. And it, it only comes up like, you know, every 50 to 100 years that someone actually does that. Or when we start to look and say, wow, you know, every toad in the world is apparently some species of bufo. I think it's time to reanalyze this. It's been 100 years since we looked at the toads, isn't it, guys? And then we we're able to say, okay, they, the toads world wide can't all just be you know different species of the same genus we need to split this stuff up um so so i wonder sometimes whether you know like how do you get that on the list what what makes it on the checklist of north american mammals um and i think that that's really the sign of acceptance that it has it has gone through the the scientific rigors you've had whatever peer review process you've had your rival uh in the field try to tear down what you said and then he goes and he collects them he finds his own uh you know 16-legged uh isopods and and wow okay this is real then it's and how long does it take for that to then get across even like i was saying you know this is 2009 where we had a confirmed record of these isopods in rat's nest cave and yet rat's nest still isn't on the list when you go and dig this stuff up online and mm -hmm. so you know it's just that there's something to be said for like the lack you know there there is no like um uh, what's the word, you know, like, like central um, chat room that we're all on that we can all kind of contribute to the same thing and it's the same conversation. But that's where those peer-reviewed journals come in, where being able to publish in, in some well-respected and widely published journal that many of, of the, your maybe detractors in the field would be able to read and either be convinced by or, or take the time to try and debunk. And then once it becomes pretty obvious that this is here, here's the specimen, this is totally new to science, it's different from all these other ones, then it ends up on a range map and and but how long does it end up in you know before it ends up in your textbook how mm -hmm. long before it ends up in uh you know in the field guides that we sell that's another thing and so maybe there's also something to be said about the the maybe not disconnect but how long it takes for a brand new scientific discovery to become accepted within the scientific realm and then slowly trickle into you know your average person's consciousness mm -hmm. that's another challenge and i would also say that you know we need to do a lot better job of communicating uh between the academic world and the rest of the population that that how much of that kind of elitism and isolation you know ivory tower type stuff for academics or even the fact that the interaction with them is really quite uh, antagonistic and dismissive it, it leads to this widespread anti-intellectualism and i think we have to take some level of responsibility for that and try to improve the the dialogue but of course, if somebody comes to you and says, I know I saw it, I saw it, this, this is exactly what it is, kind of like somebody showing up to a doctor's office already convinced what, what kind of disease they have, you're going to see resistance. They're going to say, no, I want to go through the whole process and, and see this kind of a thing. So that's, that's another challenge. How is a name assigned to a new species? And this is going to circle back on something you just said, but I'll, I'll wait until you answer that question okay, first. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it goes back to what we talked about with the actual, like, formal description of a species. And so when you say, you know, I found a new species, it has this set of characters, extremely detailed set of characters, and that does not fit into any of the known species we've already described. Um, from what we've determined, this is a new species, and this is the name we're giving it. And so then the acceptance of your peers and subsequent studies that might try to challenge that or support that are then going to go in and say, you know what, we found one that was described just like that, that someone did in 1785. He gets the name. What we named it. Um, familiar with Basilosaurus? It's no. an ancient whale. That was really long. It would have been maybe Ice Age-ish or before that. But ancient whales, extremely elongate. Like some questions as to, you know, the sea serpent stories might have actually been these extremely skinny, very long whales um, that have also been described as Zooglodon. But the first person who identified them said that it was some type of a dinosaur, a Basilosaurus. And so although it is an ancient whale and most certainly a, ma a mammal and a cetacean, Basilosaurus was the first name. And so you get dibs. When you just accurately described it the first time, um, if we can go back and find your record, and maybe that's the biggest problem, right, is that, okay, somebody described this from some other corner of the world in 1700, 
what books do you have to dust off to see that record and find that description? But that would be maybe one of the things is to go back into the published evidence and see whether or not somebody's already described this effectively. And there are a number of species like that where that happens and you're like, oh, okay, well, that guy did describe it. The name he gave it gave to it actually is a total artifact of what we thought the taxonomy or the relationships were at the time, uh, but it's it's first. And so that might be the kind of thing where as you bring that to me and I'm going to call it the eight-legged isopod and it turns out that some guy, you know, that Broignard in 1805 named it something else. My description is still valid and bringing this up as a new species that needs to actually then be uh, formally acknowledged uh, by the by the establishment, it's just that I don't get the name anymore. So so that is a big part of that description, peer review, publication process would be calling it something and then hopefully having done a very exhaustive search to make sure that nobody's already described the same thing under a different name. And this is extremely challenging. Let's say that there was conclusive evidence. There was a smoking gun. Yep. Hopefully not literally. Yes. But somehow <laughs> yeah, yeah, there <laughs> was something we could all agree. Yep. All right. We have found a bipedal ape in North America. Yep. And it's not, it's not a human. Right. Because yeah. human, humans are also bipedal apes in mm -hmm. North America. Mm -hmm. So let's say I'm the one who found it. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, so you were saying that because I'm the one who discovered it, uh, that I would have the naming rights. Potentially. Yeah. Potentially. Well, it's the naming rights are kind of by the, the actual academic who describes them. Okay, let's say I'm an academic. But I would absolutely it. name it after you in order to, to okay. give you rights for that. Okay, right? so yeah. let's say you, yeah. let's say the, You're not somewhere supposed in the to name mix. after yourself. It's a faux pas, right? <laughs> okay, somewhere <laughs> yeah. in the mix, there's an academic who, yeah. who's, who, is, uh, who is naming this thing. Yeah. The naming thing to me becomes... Uh, becomes a little bit of an issue because some could argue that this thing that we're talking about has been named. Right, yes. And there are many names mm -hmm. for what we might be describing here. Absolutely. Um, there, there are many different stories and perspectives from multiple communities over time and space that when we're talking about Bigfoot or Sasquatch, we're stitching them all together, we're drawing from them all, we're pulling them together uh, to point towards this thing that we think we're all talking about. Yeah. But it's interesting to me to, to consider that, again, the assumption is these are all fingers pointing at the same moon. Yeah. Um, but we don't know that. Nope. And some of the stories differ wildly in their descriptions of what this thing is. Yeah. In some cases, it's, it's an enculturated species with a society and it wears clothes and it's giant uh you know particularly getting into the indigenous yep. uh, stories in some cases it's like you said very supernatural and ephemeral and ghost-like in other instances uh, even when you're looking at the reports coming from uh people from you know say 1950 and onward uh talking about this thing in different ways and describing it in different ways sometimes it's more uh, ape-like, sometimes it's more human-like. Totally. Um, so there's all these different kinds of uh, descriptions. I'm assuming that if we ever did actually find something and we're able to say, okay, now we have physical evidence, let's look at it. Mm -hmm. You know, considering the kind of debates that could go on around an isopod, that we would then be faced with decades, if not centuries of debate yep. around what is this thing? Where does it fall in the taxonomic record? What name can we give to it? Yep. And how does it relate to us? Totally. So even if there ever were a smoking gun, there still wouldn't be a smoking gun because the mystery would still abound in the same way that when we're looking at the fossil record and we discover new species of, of Homo, yep. Homo floresiensis, you know, the, even the discovery of the um, Denisovans and Denisovan DNA being in our own bodies, uh, Neanderthal DNA being in our own bodies, the debate is endless because these things are moving targets. Totally. So it's it's interesting to consider that even if we did find something, that I think for a lot of people, their concept of that wild creature in the woods that has been undiscovered might still remain. Absolutely. Oh, you found this thing? Well, that's not the thing I was talking yep. about. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and so this is something that I found interesting because I think, to be fair, my my like maybe adult foray into this subject was okay I've done biology there are potentially 
ape ape predecessors. You know, giant apes are not unknown in the fossil record, so maybe it's these. And then once you start to come up against the supernatural stories, you're like, well, how do I reconcile that? Once you start coming up against the stories of, say, you know, wild men across the world, you start dealing with the, um, I think it's Almas in Siberia, and they're basically described as, like, loincloth, um, stone weapon bearing, and you can trade beads with them for skins. Um, and they're almost really seemingly describing Neanderthals, whereas, you know, nobody's talking about someone in a loincloth trading beads here in North America. But even amongst those, you know, sort of the, the Sasquatchologists, there's some people that would say, you know, we've got small ones and we've got big ones. There are the North American apes. Some say that these are, some groups are more closely related to humans. Some are 10 feet tall. Some are only seven or eight feet tall. And it, become, it becomes much more difficult. I, I think, again, it's a way of trying to reconcile the range of reports that we get. But certainly, you know, looking in Siberia or in Mongolia or in, in China, with no reason to think that it would be a, uh, the same group by any stretch. Uh, but but yeah, that that is a, another thing to consider is there's a huge diversity here. And yeah, you know, the multiple common names thing too. Yeah, that's interesting because I mean, the more oh, yeah, wide, we even talk about the other common names, the right? more widespread something is, mm -hmm. the more common names it gets. There right. are a, quite a few times where people post something or send me stuff for ID. Less, less now are people like actually bringing me a mason jar or sending me an email. It's more like they're posting to the Alberta Bugs Facebook group. Mm. Um, and you'll see this. And there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't have a common name. Mm -hmm. It's it's not controversial. It's not the first time we've seen it. It's not even rare. It's just it do, people don't encounter it enough to come up with a name for it. And when we talked about the isopods, right? We've mm -hmm. got sow bugs, slaters, penny carpenters. Some people call them potato bugs, uh, roly polies. Like, there's a whole group here, and there's a name for each one of them. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the one, like, roly poly only applies to the groups that it can actually roll up like an armadillo. The ones we have here can't do that. But people right. who come from Ontario and are used to roly polies will call our sow bugs roly polies. And the yeah. point is, you're all talking about, you know, 14-legged yeah. uh, uh, terrestrial isopods. And we wouldn't necessarily know that. Nope. You might be talking about a sow bug, and I might be talking about a roly-poly. Yep. And we think we're discussing different things, but really it's the same thing. Yeah, and I, that is actually a really common thing where people will say, what is this? And you'll say, oh, I think it's a, a lycosa of some species. And they're like, oh, I thought it was a wolf spider. And you're like, yes, wolf spiders are a family, and lycosa is a genus within that. But like mm. that, just that awareness of taxonomy, mm -hmm. you know, is like, okay, I saw a cat. And you're like, right. It was a cougar. Oh, yeah, okay. It was a member of the cat family. So we definitely see that kind of thing. And you have, you know, certainly with spiders, that's another one where people see this. There's a widely known, extremely dangerous spider found in, like, the central states. Um, and yet you can find anybody here will tell you, I was bit by one and they were here. And we have yet to get one across the desk of arachnologist. Oh, but your layperson will tell you that brown recluses are here because I was bit by one last, last year and almost lost my leg. And yet they're just not here. And so could they be? Absolutely. I've been waiting my whole career for somebody to finally drop one on my desk and say, okay, here's a formal record. Every single one of them comes back as just a regular brown spider that's from here that's not dangerous. Because to your average person, any brown spider is a brown recluse. And somebody mm. pointed out that essentially understanding and knowledge of this species has spread, thanks to the internet, to laypersons, but the corresponding knowledge of its biogeography and where you'd naturally find it hasn't. Right. And I had never occurred occurred to me that the reason so many people are like, it's a brown recluse, it's a brown, it's like, because you can go look it up on the internet and see these horrible progression of these necrotic wounds that it can produce, and the assumption is that it's here. We have seven species of flesh-eating bacteria native to Alberta and 30 different dermatological conditions that can result in the same thing, but generally you show up to the hospital with, an, with you know, a, a rotting wound on your arm, and they're like, oh, brown recluse. They couldn't identify the spider, even if you brought one. Um, we don't have formal records for it. Is it just a matter of getting one to an arachnologist? Possibly. It really speaks to the disconnect between the academic establishment and the public. And that is an unfortunate state of affairs. And so I, can't, I can't help but feel, you know, we've got the um, pop culture knowledge of Sasquatch has spread, um, but maybe faster than even, you know, the scientific establishment could catch up. Or, or arguably we have. We just keep saying, no, it doesn't exist. No, it doesn't exist. No, it doesn't exist. Well, I think that's a really good point. What we're talking about here is not discovery. We're talking about scientific confirmation or um, scientific uh, classification, agreement, you know, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. We're not talking about discovery. And quite, right, often, right. quite often when science, quote unquote, discovers something, like you said, there are other people who have known about it for generations. And yep. for them, it's commonplace. Yeah. 
and and it, there is a sense of oh, okay well you're just discovering you're discovering this now yeah um yeah welcome aboard right like, yeah welcome yeah, aboard yeah, yeah. so uh you know with all of this again it's it sounds like there were fishermen discovering isopods in the bellies of fish yep for a long time and they knew about them yep um far yeah, it, it took someone who was like wait this is a bug i don't recognize yeah to far even, before 1975 to even say this is something we don't know and so that's another right. thing about it is like who recognizes that this is an unknown? Like, I don't know. For most people, like it's a brown spider, so I don't know. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Whereas it takes the right arachnologist to go, oh, this yeah. is something we don't actually have here. Yeah. This is a new record. There could be a hundred different kinds of undiscovered species roaming around my house that I see every day, and I wouldn't know them from anything. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? so yeah. It's, do, you, it's, do you know it's worth bringing out? Yeah, it's certainly interesting. I mean, one thing that that is commonly cited, and I find it interesting, is that you know when I was a kid, giant squid were listed in the monsters section of my book, right next to Sasquatch, you know? Um, and now we know that there are giant squid, and we've actually seen them. Somebody finally hauled them up. There was lots of compelling evidence of them well beforehand. A father and his son were basically attacked in a canoe or a small boat and they grabbed the hatchet and they lopped off one of the tentacles that was six feet long just the tip that they lopped off that's actually somewhere it's known where it is it was put into a museum at some point and it was always something that was cited like no squid in the world has a tentacle this long what does this belong to and of course the giant sucker mark scars on sperm whales who eat squid for breakfast or the giant beaks that were you know softball sized radula squid beaks found in the bellies of these guys there was a mountain of evidence that could have been looked at but until we actually got one uh you know on a hook and got video footage of it it, it wasn't technically you know listed and we've got lots of examples like that i mean at the saula right the vukang ox uh found from the woods of northern vietnam and cambodia and laos in that three borders region and that was well i mean it's an ox it's a big critter that lives in the woods, and only in 2005 we're like, hey, wow, we found it. There's a Saula. And what do you think the people of Vietnam had to say about that? It's like, duh. So, um, you know, it's not like there aren't big big things out there. And I think certainly in those cases, you might just say, well, this is a matter of like, you know, actually getting scientists into the right regions. Um, I find it interesting that, you know, some of my colleagues, they go and explore any region here in Alberta that is extremely well, well trodden, and they can find a, a wasp or a beetle or a fly species that has never been cataloged in this province, in this country, possibly new to science. So sometimes it's a matter of sending the right scientist out into the right region to actually be able to recognize it. You know, so we need that we need that isopod specialist or somebody who knows isopods well enough to go, what the heck is that thing? I gotta send this off to someone, right? So I think that's maybe a part of it too, is like who who would know better? Who, you know, and and what do we have to do to get them get them out there uh, into the right areas to to actually um, figure that stuff out and say I know what I'm talking about, and th this is actually something legitimate. I think it's fairly safe to say that the, you know, whether it's the rat's nest isopod or whether it's, again, this this 16-legged uh, isopod that we've imagined, either way, you know, neither have nor would, I think, take the world's imagination by storm. No. People, no. <laughs> people, right. people wouldn't be making movies about it. Uh, they wouldn't be telling campfire stories about it. No. I think that's fairly safe to say. Yeah. So where, what kind of a splash does it make on the human consciousness? Right. right? So, so what is it about Bigfoot? Why from the very beginning, since these stories uh, started to become spread throughout you know, the modern Western world, uh, why has Bigfoot taken our imagination by storm? Um, why has it become more or less the mascot of cryptozoology? Why not some undiscovered crustacean or isopod? Mm -hmm. um, I think as far as, you know, what does it represent for us? I mean, let's just start with the campfire story, right? We've been telling campfire stories since, <laughs> since we've been making campfires. So I think it goes back to before we were even, before we could consider ourselves modern humans. So that certainly, I think that that, you know, what's scary in the woods is, is something that we've probably carried with us even like way, way back, right? Like what is actually scary and out there and what do we have to watch out for? It's probably, you know, a, a, an adaptive uh, trait to be cautious and, and conscientious of predators in an environment that you don't see very well in and you don't know what you're doing. Beyond that, obviously, it, you know, there's something that it challenges our ideas of the distinction between humans and animals the implications for human evolution what it means to be human what it means to be animal challenge all all aspects of society it challenges the scientific uh, establishment it challenges uh, traditional religions it, it challenges even just your average person's personal beliefs about you know nature stopping at your front door
explore or that or that we even that we have it all discovered and everything and so i think you know for me definitely what's so cool is that there's something out there that could actually have been seen by thousands of people like if you've got something out there that's being seen by so many people and still hasn't been captured still hasn't been bagged and tagged and the vast majority of people will tell you that it doesn't exist uh that's impressive it really is and i think that that's a that's a really cool animal if it is a real thing and really speaks to uh an intelligence and uh, a cap capability and, and even if it's merely a, a sociological uh, phenomenon it's an exceedingly interesting one and it you know the symbol of something that is a relative of humans that has escaped classification and capture it, it is the ultimate symbol of the wild I, I really like the idea of um, Bigfoot or Sasquatch as something that challenges our constructs yep. um, like you said the divide between human and animal I mean from day one, when it comes to uh, natural science, we've been talking about the missing link, the thing that connects people with animals. Uh, but again, that's a divide that we've largely established for ourselves, uh, even when it comes to looking at uh, alternative uh, species of uh, human. So like we mentioned, uh, Homo floresiensis, Neanderthals, I mean, we, we draw the lines. Yep. And every time those li lines are challenged, it feels provocative and compelling, and it's something that we want to look at because it challenges our our own sense of identity. Yep. And when it comes to bipedal apes on the planet Earth, we're used to being alone. At some point in the past, we did coexist with other species of human, but right now it's just us. Yep. And we're very used to being alone, but what if we weren't? And, and what does that do to us? And how does that challenge us? And change our perceptions and our considerations. But the, the pursuit of that is also interesting. The pursuit of, of Bigfoot and Sasquatch, I think says a lot about not just the fact that there might be this species out there, but it says a lot about us. Yeah. And for me, really, it comes down to something that I think drives scientific discovery in general, which is the, the pursuit of mystery. Yeah. And our desire to pursue mystery really is why we are the species that we are. Yeah. why we've gone to all corners of the earth and tried to live in every environment and told stories and, and wanted to explore and discover things is because we want to pursue mystery. Yeah. We want to see what is just over the horizon. You can't push the frontiers of knowledge if you think that it's all been discovered, right? Until you acknowledge that there is a frontier and something undiscovered on the other side, then you know, where, when are you going to push up against that? You know, we've been talking so much about discovering and uncovering and classifying and confirming and these sorts of things. When you're mentioning the, the giant squid as being like a monster, I remember when I was a kid, I was like obsessed with running to the library and trying to get those books about monsters. Totally. And uh, I remember one of the books, it did have giant squid in there. Yeah. And I remember this sort of mental shift, you know, being a kid and thinking of giant squid in those terms. Mm-hmm. And then when giant squid came to be confirmed by science, and now they're, you know, potentially in biology textbooks, yep. you know, whatever it is. Yep. There's a shift there that in some ways is really neat because, oh, now we know they exist. But I couldn't help but feel a, there's a little certain feeling of loss uh, there. Yeah, yeah, totally. The unknown um, and the, the mystical and the magical just shrunk a little, right? Like, yeah, yeah, so I mean, yeah. if, if we ever did confirm that Sasquatch or Bigfoot or whatever, whatever you want to call it, if we ever did confirm that there was a bipedal ape um, and it got into the textbooks, what's at stake there? What what could be Definitely. lost, if anything? I think, honestly, as much as there, that mystery would be there and me being like, it's my favorite animal because no one's ever bagged and tagged it. Like, dang, someone bagged and tagged it now. But I think that, you know, the corresponding joy and excitement of being able to now legitimately study this and maybe learn more about their where they fit into the family tree what the behavior actually is all that kind of stuff would be i would feel so vindicated after all the years of telling people there might be something to this that i think i could easily manage the well that's one less mystery because it's more of a well a toe to so right so so i think that that's maybe a big part of it but no absolutely i think there's still plenty out there and even you know then maybe it does put that more into a philosophical realm or a spiritual realm of like you know where where do we fit into this um what it, what is it to be human what is it to be animal and 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 maybe and like i say i think anything that would help us understand that that is nothing more than a line in the sand 
would be really helpful, that we're all in this together, that the effects that we have on the ecosystem is is a responsibility that we have. That would be great if that really, you know, we were able to say, wow, we're all in this together and it's not as different as we thought and, and that maybe maybe the solution is through that. I, I also maybe, it's come somewhat tangential, but I do feel like we, you know, we really hopped on the competition right? The survival of the fittest and the corresponding death of the weakest. But really our success and almost all successes of species around the world are a result of some level of collaboration and cooperation, that we work together as humans. That's what has, has helped us. If you know the diversity of bacteria that lives along with you, your, your billions of cells are outnumbered hopelessly by the bacteria and the fungi and the other things that allow you to survive. And without them, you would actually, we wouldn't, we wouldn't even be here. So that we are, it is a huge system or I'm, I don't know how much you've been following about like, you know, the fungal mycelia and the boreal forest and stuff, but basically all of the roots of all the trees in the, in the forests around the world are connected via this network of fungi and they share information. The trees can store resources. So maybe you have, uh, in some cases, the energy from a conifer, like a spruce being fed through the system to a birch. And then when the birch uh, drops their leaves in the fall, it goes the other way. These systems can actually feel footsteps. They can tell when something is walking through the forest. They can communicate alarm signals as one tree is being eaten by, by herbivores. We are actually all connected. It's almost like the, you know, almost hilariously literal aspect in Avatar of like plugging your, your dreadlock into the, you know, into the system kind of thing. It's real. It's actually real. We are all connected and that these things act as a giant ecosystem that's all together and there's even some argument for some level of consciousness between the plants and the fungi that is almost more supernatural and philosophical than there being an ape walking around in those woods as well and this is reality we are all in this together we've only ever succeeded because of this this incredible diversity and and functional ecosystems working together and we talk about bees and agriculture well we, we always seem to think about the honeybee and that's that's just like another barnyard animal the wild Wild bees and other things have been coming out of the forest and subsidizing our efforts since the dawn of agriculture. And only now are we realizing that because we're poisoning everything off and realizing that our, our coffee um, halls aren't quite as good as they used to be when we had the bees helping us out. So, you know, I do hope that within that greater context of us coming to a more enlightened attitude towards ourselves and nature and how we fit in that, that maybe it's not so crazy. Or maybe same thing, that, that Sasquatch really is just that symbol of, you know, human and animal um, and, and that that's, you know, maybe a, a sliding scale or a, not, not a, a solid boundary by any stretch. From isopod to Sasquatch to human, discovered or not, we're all in this together. Totally. You know, the things that we've touched on in terms of humans' relation to nature, understanding of that, and the, how we fit into the world around us is, is cer certainly valid. And why it's just so much fun to talk about. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Thank you again to Pete Hewley. Music was by Joseph McDade. Intangible Alberta is a production of the Royal Alberta Museum in partnership with the Strathcona County Museum and Archives. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our next episode. You are now leaving Intangible Alberta.